Marketing has a privileged place in society. And so if you work on an ad, maybe it can be 10, 15, 20 people who work on it, but that message goes out to millions and millions of people, right? And so there is like a real privilege about who's in the room, who actually says things, what's that perspective, what's that bias? And that gives us the lane to talk about these kinds of issues. Hi, my name is Elliot Lum. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Elliot Lum, a senior vice president of talent and strategy and program development at the ANA, which is the Association for National Advertisers and part of their ANA Education Foundation, AEF, where he's leading their efforts to shape the future of marketing talent. As you can imagine, he has a point of view on diversity and inclusion. I've known Elliot for a number of years, and we've always gotten into really interesting conversations at industry events. After he left kind of the big brand side at Columbia Records, he published a book called My Entrepreneurial Confessions, where he interviewed a ton of entrepreneurs. And you're going to hear some lessons from it, but like his motivations for doing the book, which I did not expect. So I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? Yeah, that to think that it required, or he had a journey of interviewing 300 people and ended up really getting some insights, not on, not just on entrepreneurship, but also just kind of on his own point of view on things was, was life uh, and relationships. Yeah, just everything. And I think, you know, that's, that's the interesting thing about talking to people, right? That's kind of the point of this podcast too, by talking to other people and understanding their experiences and their challenges and their successes and their motivations, you end up learning so much about yourself. It's almost like the world really is a mirror for who you are inside and the core of who you are. So, well, I find in some of these, like, some conversations, like I'm like going along, I'm laughing, I'm entertained. And some, I get kind of fired up and I tell our guests, like, we're not going to agree. And I don't want us to agree because I think the Delta is what's important. The the disagreement and the understanding of where someone else is coming from. I think that's where some of the problems are. We don't sure. discuss, we don't disagree enough. We just choose to go swim in our lane, stay yep. in our bubble. And look, Elliot's a pretty decent friend I've known in the industry for a while, but and you I'm took okay it to there with him. What's that? You were poking at it with him today. Oh, look, I'm, it's easy for me to throw stones because I'm out of the industry, the quote unquote advertising and marketing industry that you and Elliot are still in. And kudos to him for pivoting into a role where he has a lot more influence and in changing the narrative in the conversation. But it's easy for me to be on the outside and be frustrated, right? Like, sure. I'm turning into a pessim- cranky old man, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> old man rumming, shaking its fist at the at the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, why, why, why aren't things changing faster? Why aren't they this way? Absolutely. One thing about him, kind of ironic and sort of, you know, funny and expected is told us that he was a chess champion, national chess champion at the age of eight. So, you know, Asian, Asian guy, 
chess champion. I was like, okay, I, I think I think I know where this is going to go. Well, you and you both, but it didn't go there. But you it both didn't go there. In Chinatown. Did you yep. Did you know each other? I hate to ask that question. No, we didn't. Although, you know what's funny? I should ask him for a childhood picture because I mean, you know, that's what thirty years, thirty something years ago. At one of my last startups, you came for a visit. And there was a Chinese guy yeah. at my company, and you guys like went to school together. We totally so went to school together. I get to ask it's the true. "Did you know each other?" question from now on with it's you. Been, it's funny. Like I would say, ninety percent of the time, when I meet another Chinese person out in the world who, like, someone who was born and raised in New York City, we know each other in some way. Like we've either you know gone to the same school together, or we're friends of each other's friends, or they dated a friend of mine growing up. Like we do all know each other. It's, it's true. funny as someone as an Alabama person in New York, when I run into someone, they find out from Alabama, like, oh, I have this other friend in New York from Alabama. Do you know him? And I think like 20% of the time, like I do know. Stay. <laughs> so you're allowed to ask the question. Well, anyway, it's a really good conversation with Elliot. So get ready. Meet our friend Elliot. Elliot, thanks for joining the pod. How you doing today? Good. Thank you very much, Raman. I appreciate you and Sharon and entertaining this conversation. (laughs) It'll be anything but entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) I got to ask, man, I mean, we've known each other for years. You're people kind of know who you are in the quote unquote industry, but I don't know. Can you tell us a story about who Elliot was before the career? Something from your childhood? Yeah. When I was six years old, I beat my father at chess and he's like, wow, let me actually, this is kind of strange, extraordinary, didn't know what to do with it. So he Stuck me into a chess club, Mr. Goober's Chess Club at the Newton YMCA. And his name was Mr. Goober? His name was Mr. No. His name was Mr. Goober. That's a great name. (laughs) No, if that's your name, you don't go into teaching chess. No, he is actually, he was the perfect person to kind of be the, the master of ceremonies of that particular chess club because... Every time that you did something wrong, he would fine you a quarter. So he 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 certainly ruled with what? an iron fist. So did you have to come to practice with a lot of quarters? <laughs> a lot of for me, I think maybe I if I was out of line once or twice, I had a, a couple quarters on me, but those were actually reserved for more video games downstairs. Got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the younger folk in the audience before all of us had amazing consoles. Yeah, you had to line up the quarters to go to what Diamond Gyms, Aladdin's Castle. Get your video game. Yeah. I mean, it was the pickings were where were the games and let's go play. So there was actually down at the YMCA, there was actually a bunch of video games, air hockey, and those are great times. I mean, play a couple games of chess and play some video games. I mean, you can't go wrong there. I miss the communal nature of arcades. I stopped gaming when I don't know, wanted to maintain a life. <laughs> and and I'm nothing against gaming. It's like I resist it. I don't want to switch. I don't want to play the new spider or the Old Spider-Man game, I should say, by this point. But I miss the communal nature from my childhood of that. Literally, again, whether it's air hockey, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Street Fighter, but just people gathering around a thing communally. And it didn't even have to be your friends. It could be you and your friends with a bunch of other people's friends at the arcade. Well, yeah, I mean, that was a really important time in my life because it was a chance for me to, as, as you said, have that community of people who... I would essentially play a ton of games and we had friendships. I mean, friendships that I even carry to this day. But I think what ended up happening was like I kept on winning. I beat everybody in the club. My dad and mom were like, wow, maybe there's something here. So let's let's take it to some tournaments. And so I go to some local chess tournaments five wow. miles away, 10 miles away. 
kept on winning. Didn't really understand. I was just like, well, it feels good to win. And so literally kept on winning, 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 and then got to state championships under eight years old. And I would win that tournament, went to nationals. Wow. And I did not win that tournament. But what I what I remember being was the number one seed when I was eight years old, because the way that chess works is is that you have a rating system. And the rating system is based on who you beat and what the quality of strength of that that opponent is. So as you won more, you gain more rating points. So my People magazine back then was was Chess Life. And so I would like every month I would get this Chess Life magazine and look at where my rating was. And suddenly, wow, I was number one for a long period of time. Well, let's call it maybe two years. Two years. That's impressive. Yeah. In the next several seven, eight years or so, I still kept a rating, but I retired probably by, by the age of 12 because wanted to do other things, sports and fun things. But chess was a big part of my life for that that period of time. Were you ever on the cover of Chess Life? Never. Never. Oh, man. I think I got maybe a little bit of an article shout out at one point, but okay. Okay. never the cover. <laughs> Probably would have been horrified. So When you had said your People magazine, I was like, I wonder if there's a thing of all chess champions want to make the cover of Chess Life. <laughs> I don't think, a, yeah, I don't think a kid that, that was like, I think I was just happy to be named in the actual magazine. And honestly, it was, it was great because I got a chance to travel really young went to I was based in in Newton Massachusetts obviously all around the state they had a ton of chess tournaments went to a lot of national tournaments like Terry Hout Indiana obviously in the New York area a bunch of other places as well I think Michigan and played in international competitions Iceland team would come over here to the to the US and we would compete against them so really intense I mean chess is a really obviously cerebral game so you basically have to sit at the table for four or five hours and just focus. And for me, it sort of actually developed a lot of sort of discipline in terms of that kind of focus and structure and thinking ahead to traits that I certainly carry on with me today. How are you different from that kid, that chess player? I would say that the core is very principled, right? But the personality, when you are playing chess, again, is it's very cerebral, it's very internal, it is you and the board and against an opponent. And I'd say that my personality, I've started to, over the years, demonstrated different... A lot of people who play chess are very kind of introverted. I definitely would say that I've leaned much more extroverted, but sort of use those same principles in the corporate world to essentially drive results. And I found that sort of that nice combination of external and internal kind of works to my advantage. So I want to ask this question because it's meant to kind of provoke a little bit, because I know you've been asked it, I've been asked it, many of our guests have been asked it, and it's sometimes asked two times in a row. Where are you from? And I'm sure you're going to say Newton, Massachusetts, or you know New York, or DC, but then the second, where are you from? So how do you answer? How do you react to that question when someone asks you, where are you from, Elliot? I think I kind of, what I do is, I mean, I'm third generation Asian American, my father was born in Honolulu. My mother was born in Chinatown, New York. Their grandmothers were, or my grandmother, their mothers were born here in the States. And so I always answer, I'm from Newton, Massachusetts. And if you really want to know, I'm actually, I was born at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City. <laughs> so, and I feel that kind of, and if they want to ask some more, I say, you know, my family is from Canton. I've struggled for myself in terms of what is that Asian identity when you don't necessarily grow up speaking the language. 
And like I did have an experience after school, like I really tried hard. So I went to Columbia for college and I really tried hard to learn Chinese. Two years intense every single day, practicing characters, listening to tapes. And I literally just couldn't get it. It just didn't sort of register with me. I think by the the second year, the, the last semester, I was in that class, but I did not understand like a word that the teacher said. And so I was still determined. So I actually ended up going to China to actually continue to learn Chinese at Tsinghua University in Beijing. And I just struggled there too. I just did not connect with the culture, did not connect with the language. And I think language is sort of the access to culture. I think people kind of didn't give me any of the benefit of the doubt. And I was only there for three months. And if I probably stuck it out for a longer, I would have gotten it. I would have been able to get the language and then really sort of maybe dig into my roots. But I had a job coming back to the States that I was going to. And emotionally, I just felt a little disappointed that I just couldn't immerse myself in the way that I wanted to. So to answer your sort of question in a long way, I, that's the way that the sequence in which I kind of would answer it if they wanted to dig in more. Well, so when you say you didn't connect with the culture when you went back, unpack that a little bit. Why don't you think you connected with it beyond the obvious, the language piece? Well, I mean, I think part of it is I just remember this experience when it was raining and there was a woman who came up to me and asked me where to go for directions. And I was like, I couldn't answer her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The language mm -hmm. was disconnected for me. It's a wall. Yeah. Yeah. And so that moment really stuck with me. I appreciate like I felt like I was a tourist there. Yeah. And the tourist piece didn't feel it didn't feel good. Yeah. And I don't think that I was prepared to like I, I think I made a genuine attempt, but I did not make a committed attempt. My comparison is I speak Spanish well enough, right? So I can go to Spain, I can go to Latin America, I can blend in, I can access people and ideas and experiences in a way that doesn't feel like a tourist. And so that for me is sort of the, the comparison because the language for me is the key to kind of unlocking what that is. Yeah. yeah, my daughter's half Chinese, half Indian, and my wife and I don't speak much Cantonese or Hindi or Punjabi or any of that stuff. And people ask us, oh, are you going to teach her? I'm like, we can't speak it. And we have that debate with our parents. And we're like, it's actually insanely more practical for our daughter to learn Spanish as an American, as someone who lives on in the Western Hemisphere, right? And sure, there might be a Chinese school or some Indian temple stuff from a culture perspective, but we've kind of just put it to bed. I mean, they'll be like the kitchen words about fruit. And I tell her to come here or sit down in Hindi just because it's a few things I know. But I don't know. It just feels like I'd be equipping her better for life, even though there's like a, a missed culture thing with the language. What about you, Sharon? Do you yeah, speak Mandarin or Cantonese at home? I speak. Well, I can't even say it's speaking, but I can understand Cantonese. And yeah. I did take Mandarin classes in college. Kind of like Elliot, I was born here and I'm second generation American. So my parents at home fluently spoke English and they would intersperse Chinese words here and there. Words for grandma and grandpa were always yeah. in Chinese, that kind of thing. And we did go to Chinese school. So I had that. But when you don't use the language, it almost becomes this, it's like a muscle that you don't exercise regularly. So I have found myself in moments where people have asked me for directions and I can kind of basically point them in some direction, but I find myself wishing that I had either tried harder or paid more attention or the same thing as you, Elliot. And, and it is this funny, it's almost, 
I wonder if I'm putting more pressure on myself because I am outwardly Chinese. I'm of Chinese descent, right? So I look Chinese and inwardly I feel like I'm some hybrid of some sort versus Elliot, when you're talking about speaking Spanish, sometimes I wonder, I don't speak another language, but if I did speak Spanish or if I spoke French, if people would give me a pass for maybe not speaking as well in that language. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost like because I'm Chinese, I expect myself to sound as if I am fluent or at least be able to have a certain level of communication versus if it was a completely different language and I had like really basic, like if I knew five words, people would still I don't know, be more accepting of it, or I would feel more confident because I would kind of know that that wasn't really something that I was culturally connected to. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the, there's a expectation. The expectations are just lower, right? When you're right. in a different country and you look different. And so when you exceed those expectations, there's certainly a welcoming into the conversation in a way that you're just, you feel part of it. You feel included. Whereas I think for me, when I was in in China, it just, it felt, and also there's probably in Chinese culture, I think there's also a sense of shame and guilt as well in not being able to sort of live up to your your Chinese roots, Asian roots. And it is, maybe that was sort of what was activated in me where it's like, there's a sense of disappointment where I wasn't living up to those kinds of cultural expectations that folks actually had of me. Right. Yeah. I hear you on that. With Indian people, it's weird because I've thought about this a lot, my wife being Chinese-American. You go to China, they might not speak English. They're probably not going to speak English. It's Chinese everywhere, the few times I've been, right? But you go to India, and the judgment is hard because they all speak English, the Queen's English, and they speak Hindi, (laughs) and the regional dialect. And they're just like, and if my mom, they grew up in East Africa, they speak like Swahili or something too. I'm like, they're just like, the judgment is so hard because like, really? One, one and a half. That's all you got. That's true. Uh, Elliot, I guess let's talk about like what you grew up to be like back to as a kid. What did mom and dad want you to be? And then what did you want to be? My parents were phenomenal in terms of giving me a lot of latitude and range to, to do what I wanted to do. I think the one thing that when I was a little wayward in seventh and eighth grade, just trying to what didn't have a ton of focus, they actually gave me that opportunity to go to private school. So I went to an all-boys school called Belmont Hill, which really was an incredible foundation for me in terms of character building, in terms of integrity, in terms of principles. Everything there, in my mind, I got an incredible education. But more importantly, I, I felt that they did a great job in kind of building that... Fa- I mean, it was hard, right? The schoolwork was hard. Every hour was prescribed. You had to... Lunch, for instance, I remember there was assigned seating. You actually had to, for every two months or something, wait on the wait on the actual table as as the person who delivered all the food to the table. Yeah, I totally did that. And so it just gives you a lot of discipline, right? And it gives you a lot of focus. And for me, it just gave me that foundation so that when I went to Columbia, I felt like actually school was pretty easy, right? The transition was very easy. And And because high school for me was just so rigorous in terms of the amount of time spent on academics, on sports, for me, I ended up, wow, I want to learn how to write better. And I ended up majoring in art history when I was in school because I felt like it was a chance for me to like look at things in right in New York City and write about it. You could look at a de Kooning painting, you could look at a, a Hopper painting, you could look at a 
Bierstadt painting and come back with your own point of view and sort of share that. And I think that for me, the output of, of college often in a lot of parents' minds are like, what job are you going to get? For me, the output was how am I going to maximize my academic experience to really get the most out of being in New York City at an incredible university with the number one art history department in the world. And I was able to take like so many different classes in, a, in different topics. I was hounding for books around contemporary Chinese art back then, Chinese furniture, was writing sort of reports on it. I just really loved that process. And I think my parents probably scratched their heads and were like, what are you going to do with that? And honestly, I didn't have a good answer. I just knew that I went to a, a really great school and I was building a skill set that I didn't really have before. So that for me was, again, my parents definitely provided guardrails, but I was able to kind of explore what I wanted to explore within those guardrails. Well, and then somehow that got you into the world of evil marketing, right? That's where we met. <laughs> and we're still kind of, I call it the quote unquote industry, but like we're all kind of at the periphery, even if we're kind of one foot in, one foot out. But did you think you were going to be a marketer when you grew up? Yeah, I didn't even know what that meant. Probably back then, right. I think it was like, same, same. I mean, a good marketing project that I did for a Richard Martin, who was the curator of the fashion couture department at the Met. So I took one of his classes and one of our projects was, I don't even remember what the mandate of the project was, but my project was, I went ahead and shot all of these different advertisements in New York City. I thought they were art. It was like city art, right? Yeah, that's pop art, right? Yeah, bus shelter art, like yeah, Times yeah. Square, all that. And was able to kind of capture those those photos, but you know, write about it, right? So that probably was my entryway into marketing. And probably my official entry into marketing was when I worked at Corporate Executive Board, which is now Gartner. Because ultimately, I translated that research sort of skill set into a research job. And so I worked in a department that focused on the needs of chief marketing officers. And so that was sort of, wow, this feels right. There's a creative piece. There's an analytic piece. There's something here that really works. I mean, I feel like a lot of us who get in the field, I stumbled into it, right? I just kind of gumped my way in. And then I was like, wow, they're paying me to do this. And then you just kept doing it. And they kept paying me. And then you wake up. Because you were good at it, Raman. No, I refute that fact wholeheartedly. Uh, I was better at playing the game. And back a little to the parents thing, the parents didn't know what I was doing. They didn't understand it. They just said, oh, okay, I've heard of this company. You seem to be doing well. You're moving overseas. You're moving to different cities. You're doing things. <laughs> and then when I decided to walk away from it, they're like, what? <laughs> I don't know. But you've kind of become, you've pivoted your role a little bit. You're still in the industry but you're in kind of like this influential kind of training role and and you're pushing some of the topics that we talk about I think in the industry now. Do you do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean I think just tracking from a narrative standpoint. So I after corporate executive board. So I've been I call myself like a lifelong marketer, but I haven't been it been in the marketing space in different functions. So one in a research function I was similar to you, Raman. I was at Colgate-Palmolive as a brand manager for four years. I ended up spending six years at Columbia Records putting artist deals together with brands. So think like Jay-Z, Budweiser, Beyonce, Pepsi. Those were none of my deals, but those are that's sort of the kind of trajectory of, of how do you think about artists with brands in a way that's authentic, that manages that artist brand, but also sort of amplifies the partner's brand as well. And so I ended up after a year I took off, then I ended up at the ANA. 
their educational foundation. And a lot of the work that I do, the foundation's mission is to bridge academia and industry together to inspire and educate the next generation of talent. And the things that I do there are, I mean, in a couple buckets, research, program development, and some of the growth initiatives that we have. I would say that what's been interesting and fascinating for me is building programs from the ground up and seeing how they perform from a, not just from a, from a kind of quality of candidate perspective, but also a diversity perspective as well. And so definitely been pushing on that front in terms of trying to scale these programs and building levels of equity and access to everybody into the marketing industry, given the fact that what our research showed was that, listen, there's a lot of privilege, socioeconomic privilege. There's also some racial privilege in being able to get access to internships. And so what we tried to do is we tried to democratize that and say, listen, there's an opportunity for us to create a common app for students into the marketing and advertising industry, where the three things that we look for are critical thinking, leadership potential, and cultural IQ, as well as emotional EQ. Yeah, I want to pick on something very specifically. You wrote this AEF diversity disconnect. And I thought that was really interesting because you interviewed just more than 100 executives and you kind of picked their brain on what was working and what wasn't working. What was the motivation there? Why didn't you just, I hate this. I'm not asking this literally. I'm asking this rhetorically. Why don't you just stay in your lane and kind of do the basic stuff that you were being paid to do? Why did you feel the need to literally call out the diversity disconnect? Yeah, I mean, it was in a, so a couple points there. One, which is it's in a framing that we sort of, our foundation, it's all about industry, academia, and talent, right? So it's the three-legged stool. And so often you can talk to industry, you can talk to academia, you could talk to talent all independently, but we talked to them all at the same time to identify where the disconnects were. So it was a natural progression from the initial study, given the sort of topic of the time, which was a lot of discussion around diversity and inclusion. And so, so that's one piece. The second piece is when you say stick in your lane, I think it was very intentional to look at the topic and be as objective as possible. We hired a research company to do the student interviews. And then for professors and industry, I did them. And what I tried to do is I tried to get as wide of a range as possible to kind of make sure that everybody felt included, whoever wanted to be in the study. I would have interviewed two to 300 people just from a time-constrained perspective wasn't able to. And really, the key takeaway there was industry and academia certainly invested in diversity and inclusion, but the talent themselves still felt didn't feel that sense of belonging, right? So, And why do you think that is? So the, the quotes that we heard were like, you know, there's still microaggressions, cultural illiteracy, workplace dissonance, management disconnect. And so there were very like powerful quotes in there that kind of highlighted each of those different sort of pieces. And I think it was really, it was a, a good sort of prompt for us to know that there's still a problem. And clearly that has become even more visible today. And so it was almost like a foreshadow of what, what actually some of the inequities that you're actually seeing today and the ability to talk about it. I think for me, like in terms of every single research piece that we've done or every program that we do has to have some level of action against it. Mm-hmm. And so at the time we were thinking, well, we know that there's sort of this disconnect. How do you solve for it? If like industry and academia are sort of aligned against it. And I think what was challenging, I think, as we were thinking about what the right solution is, is that it was really hard to get people on the phone to talk about it. And when they did, we got 30, 40 minutes. 
to really go into depth about what you know they thought about the topic, but I didn't feel there was energy around bringing different ecosystems together to be able to solve this problem together. And because I, I think there's already existing infrastructure in place that people can point to, like the CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion, for instance, is a is one example. And at the time we were like, okay, so what are we going to do? So we actually ended up things that we could control because we are a small foundation. It's only seven of us. So I do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of, you know, I told you I did all the research and all the interviewing. I did the writing of the report and the output of it. We actually created this inclusion, what we called an inclusion index, where we tried to link inclusion back to sort of business growth. Because ultimately, we, what we've tried to discover was, was there sort of a inequities when you sort of ask different constituencies all anonymously, how they sort of were felt included if they were in the room, for instance, or were they invited into the room? Were they, did they feel like they were heard in the room? Did they feel like they, that their perspective was appreciated? Did they feel, does their manager involve them? So on a five-point scale, we were capturing this data. And we've been working at it literally for the past six to nine months. We actually have the data back. And before COVID, we're thinking about how best to release it and now are rethinking about how we're going to do that. But that was a way for us to, to kind of look at it from a business standpoint and let people see. And I think the idea, we thought it was a very innovative approach to it because when you look at inclusion work right now, the indexing, there's about six or seven indexes out there. And it's a lot about like stack ranking, like, who's number one, two, three, four, five, six. And we didn't want to like, maybe at this point, people will be much more open to being more transparent, but pre-COVID- Why not not call out winners and losers? I think it was a a function of, well, pre-COVID, I think our thought was, I mean, we're thinking just to be, to gain sort of the foot, I'm a big believer in just incremental change. And so getting sort of company support, getting kind of alignment, et cetera, we were sort of working that way. I think today maybe it's we can be a little bit more provocative, but I think before we were working more sort of in incremental steps. But don't you think, I just want to pick on that. And again, I'm out of the industry, so it's easy for me to kind of cast stones. Incremental change, marginal change is what's gotten us into this situation, right? Versus meaningful step change. And maybe the only way to pull these companies forward is... And I say this like not not even like with my axe to grind in DNI, but you know, as a young digital marketer, it's like, okay, we'll spend two percent more, two percent more, two percent more. And a company comes out of left field and just demolishes you and steals 10 share points because they went all in, right? And and read the writing on the wall. And that would be about like a digital trend change or something like that. And in the DNI space, and DNI is in the lane of like HR and hiring and representation, never mind the stuff that's in the streets right now. But I do think it's a microcosm of like, okay, we're just going to make small, minor changes to satisfy the shareholders, to get the brochure out. Isn't that what got us into this problem? I just, no one's willing to call it what it is. And again, easy for me to say from the outside looking in, because I've been on the outside a little longer now, even in startups, but I just, I get frustrated with that statement, Elliot. And I don't know, someone talked me off a ledge because it just makes me incremental change is what gets the world into problems. I guess to build on that as someone who's in the industry and who actually came through 
a program. Oh yeah, you came through MAPE, right? I came through MAPE, right? Which is, I don't know if you guys would consider that a competitive program, a competitor program, but it's similar. Complimentary. Definitely complimentary. complimentary yeah, we, we definitely collaborate with them. So we yeah. we believe that all programs have the right to flourish yeah. and we want to see them flourish. So I want to explain to the audience okay. what MAPE is really quick. So MAPE is the Multicultural Advertising Intern Program and it's run by the four A's, which is the, so the agency side, not the brand side. On the agency side, right. Yeah. And so similar to AEF, like it's very similar mission and purpose. And so when I think about the bigger reason for, for diversity and inclusion in marketing and advertising, I like to think of it in terms of societal and cultural belief change. If you have people in, in decision-making roles that are diverse in their thinking, in their culture, in their background, in their life experiences, we can better represent brands and overall messages that are more inclusive. Move the culture, right? Right. To like really move the needle. And I think we're like, I don't know, Elliot, what are your thoughts? Like, I think we're seeing that the backlash of that right now, the whole Black Lives Matter movement is about systemic racism. And it's, it's time that companies really step up. I mean, this incremental change is not enough. Hiring one more person of color on a board is not enough. Yeah, I guess you have to define what incremental change is. I guess for me, incremental change might be a different definition. And for I sort of take it of the belief that you make sure that quality is the most important criteria about what you do. And then you sort of make sure that you drive towards an inc inclusive approach to drive towards that quality, which then actually drives diversity outcomes. So when you look at our program outcomes, for instance, like our MADE program, which we scaled from 700 to 1,800 applications in the past three years and the process is very much based on integrity. We tried to minimize as much bias as possible. It's very principled and the evaluation process is perceived as fair. Ultimately, our, our numbers or applications are about 50% diverse and 80% female. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at even things that we've designed, there's a lot of discussion about talent in the industry, like, oh, we need more talent, we need better talent, we need more diverse talent. And the way that we've approached talent and, and driving action towards this is we created this concept called Talent Week, where we sort of, how do you bring together DNI plus HR plus L&D plus CMO plus agency leader plus academia? And we were able to actually structure it in a way where we sort of found each person's audience. And then every single day is very intentional and to focus on talent. But we actually did not create a separate track for diversity and inclusion. We actually put it at the heart of what it is. And so when you look at our co-chair representation, it's 50%, uh, actually more than 50% diverse. And we talk about diversity in different sort of forms where often you don't talk about it because we're intentional about it. So for me, I think it was a point of, in the way that I was thinking about it, Raman, was to your question, it's like meeting people where they're at and yeah. trying to kind of lead them along to a process where Everybody believes like, you know, qual and I, we've been fortunate in building all these systems from from the ground up, which I think provides like a really good model, because I think what we discovered when diversity and inclusion is, is talked about, it's sort of like the digital conversation, you sort of put it in its own lane, then it's that person's responsibility to kind of shoulder all of it. So D&I often sort of is, oh, you point to the chief diversity officer, and that's sort of the person who has to manage it all, where it's everybody's responsibility. And so I think for me, what's been happening today certainly expanded my viewpoint about how to catalyze more change. And I think there's more of sort of a, a mandate for that. 
But I also think that there's this belief that you have to meet people where they are so that they can take the t- and make the change with you in a way that feels collaborative. And it feels, again, in my mind, what is the, the quality threshold that we need to hit that ultimately brings everybody along together? I get that. I just, people talk about not being racist versus being anti-racist, right? And it's just, you talked about removing bias. Absolutely. But it's just making making a level playing field actually doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve for the inequities and the systemic issues that cause them. And again, I'm, I promise I'm not picking on you. I'm just picking on like systems in general. And okay, so you blind resumes, you take these strip names off, you take faces off, etc. And may the best man win. Okay, or woman win. Okay, that definitely incrementally moves up the representation a little bit. But there are still systemic issues why the quote unquote, that people aren't operating at the same level, right? Whether it's the schooling they got, the opportunity they got, the internship they got. You strip, like if you strip names off a resume and you just go after who had the coolest internship or academic experience, you're still going to see a massive underrepresentation. And I feel like I'm throwing stones, so I really apologize because I, I don't know what the answer is. And you guys are doing good work. MAPE is a good program. We've spoken to a few MAPE alums on this show. I just, having worked in startups, right? And sometimes I'm the lone brown guy or the lone Asian guy, and there are not black or Hispanic people, or there aren't women on the leadership team. And I look back at like one startup I was at. A few years later after I left, I decided to look up all the people at the company. Who, who, are the, who Which of my friends are still there? Which aren't? And it was Sea of White. And it just like the most upsetting thing to me. There weren't even token Asians, never mind black or Hispanic people in a city that has a ton of black and Hispanic agency and tech talent. And that's because you left. No, it's not. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, yeah, haha. But no, I was a remote guy in New York. Yeah. Right. For a company that was in another city. Yeah. And I kind of want all the stuff that's going. I, I think people are getting more woke, but I'm afraid it's greenwashing or whitewashing or blackwashing or whatever you want to call it. Hey, we d- we invested in a program. I don't know. I just I don't know what change should be. I feel there's a lot of public proclamation and the piece is what's the private accountability that's going on. And so you look at a company like Ben and Jerry's, right, that are actually involved. And this is what I'm actually particularly post-COVID. So I wrote that diversity disconnect. I intellectually understood sort of the challenges that are going yeah, on, yeah, but yeah. I, I literally did not understand it emotionally. And yeah. I think once a lot of the xenophobia for me happens, and I was like, wow, I read that New York Times article. It said like spit on, yelled at, in all the bad stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is really bad. Emotionally, I felt shocked and I felt, you know what, it's not a question of if it will happen to me, it's just a question of when. And it wasn't a good feeling. And so I think all the things about the social injustice today definitely is how do you dig into some, what are the real issues that are facing not just marketing, but society? At least I can talk very intelligently at this point about the Asian experience because I've been looking at it for the past since March or so, and now I'm getting into this, everything going on with Black Lives Matter and just trying to understand the pieces to it that get to the legislative details, that get to the policy decisions, to understand who the players that are making those kinds of decisions so that you understand it's not necessarily one, everybody calls it a systemic change, but you have to understand the pieces to what the system looks like before you can make the change. As a good example, as you look at racism that's happening to the AAPI community after the pandemic because people are starting to blame China versus the natural pandemic versus it being a natural pandemic. 
but what's the solution to that, right? And when you look at the pieces, more like Chinese the, people in Pepsi ads. I don't, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, advertising is a privileged role in society today, and so the ad council we're working with is is looking at how do we sort of address the bias. But then it's like you look at all the all the things that are sort of festering online. How do you sort of put in and police more policies with with those sort of groups so that it doesn't escalate out of control? How do you sort of build out programs around bullyship and allyship when hate incidents actually happen on the subway or on the sidewalk? How do you provide a reporting site that captures all of this to kind of then feeds into a press narrative? How do you sort of provide emotional resources to people who actually went through it? So it's like an entire value chain that's the system, right? And if you understand who, and this is my belief, which is if you understand marketing can only go so far. Everybody talks about marketing for good, which is absolutely in the right place. But really the people who are the, what I'll call like the last mile solution providers are those nonprofits and they're often not talking to each other. And so the problem is how do you sort of, you need sort of a layer of, I hate to say it, but the middle management where you are sort of bringing some of the resources that the marketing and advertising industry provide to help with this coordination problem where nonprofits can get into how do you actually work together? So that's what I'm literally doing with Stop API Hate with some of the folks that put out a Twitter bot called Twitter Respond to Racism, thinking about it in an ANA perspective from brand safety guidelines to putting a press team together to make sure that the Stop API Hate people can kind of get the narrative out into the mainstream. So it's not, it's almost from back to the days of integrated marketing. I mean, it's very much an integrated marketing approach, but you got to work your influence skills to get people to work together. Because often what I've found is a lot of nonprofits compete with each other. And that's what we're trying to kind of talk about the greater whole because everybody's competing for resources. Well, something you said earlier when we're doing integrated marketing as digital folks, it was, no, you don't need a digital plan. You need a marketing plan that is fundamentally digital, right? So you don't need an HR plan. You need an HR plan that DNI is at the heart of it, right? The understanding, the goal, it's, it's got to be at the heart or at the mission of the work. Otherwise, it's just an add-on. It's a rounding error, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, can't, it certainly can't be that, that rounding area for sure. I want to shift gears a little. You wrote a book. <laughs> I remember when we checked in with each other a few years ago. I was like, I'm writing a book. It's like, what? <laughs> and you interviewed a bunch of people. And it's funny, the precursor to this podcast was me kind of having my own little moment. And I interviewed a bunch of people. And why'd you do it? What did you gain from that? What did you not gain? What did you learn? What was the motivation behind the interviews or the idea of putting the interviews in a book? Yeah. So, I mean, so I interviewed for one year. So I quit my job at Columbia Records and I wrote this book called Entrepreneurial Confessions, How Young Founders Found Their Way. And I interviewed 300 entrepreneurs across the country. And it was very intentional to get, I mean, thinking back on it and sort of all the things that I believe in, which is integrity and the right principles in place, inclusivity, it was really intentional to get great geography, good female-male ratio in the entrepreneurship realm, distribution of different industries, and from a racial perspective, a good representation there. And no story was better than the other. It was just their story. And so the stories, I think I put 50 stories in the actual book. And it is, again, no no entrepreneur is featured higher than somebody else because I felt like everybody had their own story to tell and was able to, and I did it in a place where everybody was, again, sort of 
it was meant to be a teaching tool, I guess, for people who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs of trying to find that question of why. But the real reason why I wrote it was because I think I was I was heartbroken. My ex-wife was an entrepreneur and our sort of marriage deteriorated from that. And I put that in the book and and share that. And this was a chance for me to try to understand what, what went wrong in it because I just didn't understand it. Like I understood sort of I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs when I was at Sony Music I, while I, while we were together, and I loved entrepreneurship. But for whatever reason, there was a chasm that couldn't be bridged, and so that's why I went on the journey. And I think the lesson learned from that is that yes, it was great for me to to do this particular project or book, but I actually needed to look more internally to actually see where I was broken and try to understand my own sort of behavior. Why do you think you're broken? The chasm you described, just not being able to bridge it, does that mean you're broken? I think it was, I use that sort of as a term of understanding my past, right? And understanding how I was raised and understanding kind of my parents and sort of the dynamic that they had in raising a family. And I realized I took a lot of patterns from from them in terms of my father was the the person who was the the care provider and provided the financial resources. He was a doctor and he was home every single day at five o'clock and we always had family to get dinner together. My mom was the one that was our kind of our emotional center. And I felt very loved, but I probably didn't know what exactly that meant. Physical hugging, telling you that you love. I knew that they love me, but the frequency of actually saying, hey, hey, I love you, wasn't there. Is that an Asian thing, you think? Sorry. (laughs) I always point to this scene in Tiger Tail, which is a film by Alan Yang on Netflix. He's the producer of Masters of None and Parks and Rec. There's a scene there where the daughter, she's eight years old, playing in a piano recital, and she messes up. And so she takes a bow, everybody's clapping except for her parents. And then the scene cuts to her in a car with, with the daughter really sad, like crying, the father angry, and the mother and brother essentially silent and not consoling the daughter and not putting up or fighting for her. And I would not say that that was my experience, but it's, it is a, it's an experience that I think that probably a lot of Asians can relate to trying to be perfect, trying to be the best at what they're doing, heads down, focus on not getting the A, but the A plus. And I definitely strove for the best when I was a kid, but my emotional kind of sort of richness or territory, I've had to kind of figure out because I definitely felt really in my marriage was a sense of emptiness that I think that my ex-wife also felt as well. And we weren't able to talk about things in a much more... Yes. Same kind I'm sorry, same kind of Asian? She was Singaporean. Okay. Chinese, okay. Chinese Singaporean. Okay. And again, we just I know we loved each other and I still love love her very much, even though we don't talk. And I remember those years and with great fondness, but I remember also great pain and not being able to talk about some of our issues that are on me, right? And so this is what I've been on a journey right now for the past five years to to really sort of rehabilitate my own kind of ability to talk. I can talk with anybody, as you know, Raman, I'll talk to anybody, but to have to be in a real deep, meaningful relationship where there's there's an understanding of each other is is hard. And I feel it's something that I'd like to get better at, and I'm trying. If you could tell your past self anything, what advice would you give him? I would have actually told myself to go see a therapist a little earlier. 
I mean, I say that like in jest, but also like it's, no, it, I get it. I get it. It's also, it would have been helpful for me to talk about emotions in a way that was very real and honest. And it's very eye opening. And I think when you look at the numbers, for instance, Asians do not go to, like, I think go to, to therapists like three times less than their Caucasian counterparts. There's a higher incidence of psychiatric disorder amongst Asians sort of on an annual basis than, than other races. And I think a lot of it is the focus on, and again, I'm generalizing here, but the focus on education, the focus on being the best and don't worry about talking, just do. And I actually think that a therapist would have been helpful for me to explore emotions much more versus in my head. That stat, is that an Asian American stat or is that an Asian Asian stat? Going to majority Asian countries, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, India, Vietnam, like, like is the incidence level of therapy lower in those countries because you maybe just have different support networks and systems around? It's actually, it's, it's cited, it's, it's, it's an American Psyche uh, Psychology Association okay, that cited it, okay. so... Okay. It's probably Asian Americans. Yeah, it's definitely Asian American. I mean, I definitely know there's a stigma. I, I can't speak for East Asian society, but in South Asian society, that stigma does exist to a degree. Yeah, and I think it's it's a stigma overall. I mean, you see trying Michael Phelps with Talkspace and try to sort of destigmatize it to a general population, but I, it's similar to you go to a trainer, right? So you get your physical exercise. You also need sort of mental exercise as well. And emotional exercise. And so this is really good to have a trainer. And I'm so thankful that I've been on that journey to understand myself a lot better and be compassionate for myself, be compassionate for my parents. I feel like the richness of my relationship with my parents has improved because I can talk to them and meet them where they're at so that they... I can have that deeper connection with them. Because I definitely do believe that there is a the most important thing in life is the relationships that you have with the people who you love. And so that is something that I try to do with my parents, with my sister, with very close friends. I think I'm coming into my own at the age of 44, where I am still understanding myself and still want to get better. And this job thing, I feel like I've had the best jobs in the world, particularly when I was at Columbia Records, working with a ton of artists, Adele, Beyonce, One Direction, Rachel Platten, Snoop Dogg, T.I. I had a great experience there, but there was still a sense of emptiness. And all the things that I shared with you before about the things that I'm doing today and actually feeling the ANA is really the best place to actually drive societal change. Societal change might be a little bit sort of a No, I think, I think from, the, from, from, from the skill or the lane that we swim in, we're industry folks and you can probably exert more change there than at a big brand like Colgate or something, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, because you're sort of working with a ton of companies, right? That kind of, you can try to put in policies in place or make them sort of think about different kinds of things. I mean, we've definitely seen what the power of the ANA can actually do in terms of, for instance, cleaning up the media supply chain and and those kinds of pieces. But I also think that when I wrote that diversity disconnect study, there was an academic who cited this idea where it's like marketing has a privileged place in society. And so the idea where you have literally maybe... If you work on an ad, maybe it can be 10, 15, 20 people who work on it, but that message goes out to millions and millions of people, right? And so there is a real privilege about who's in the room, who actually says things, what's that perspective, what's that bias, 
And that influence, and it's not a, I'm very proud with this foundation that I'm at, which is part of the ANA. It's part of the mission is to advance the role of advertising in society today. And that gives us the lane to talk about these kinds of issues in a wider scope than maybe just sort of the process of how do you clean up the digital supply chain or how do you put greater taxonomy on on the terminology or the taxonomy of the of the martech stack right those are important initiatives for sure but what gives people meaning and what actually sort of makes me want to lean in that much more is exactly that it's i went to this do good auto coalition today where i was with this asian founder from constellation agency She actually founded this nonprofit where she basically has organized a couple hundred thousand pounds of food over the past eight weeks to underprivileged areas with the leveraging the dealership clientele network that she has. So basically taking excess cars and then going to a distribution center where we unpack all this food and then we actually deliver it directly to homes in underprivileged areas. And the key thing here is two, one, which is she has the, the infrastructure, this car infrastructure to deliver against the last mile problem. But what was interesting is that she also has built out an analytics dashboard where she can see, for instance, which nonprofits are delivering food, which, which areas are getting under-delivered versus over-delivered. How do you sort of optimize a route? We went to 20 homes today. How do you optimize that route so you're not going door-to-door over the course of six hours, but over the course of two to kind of minimize volunteer fatigue. And so I think for me, that's a powerful example of where marketing can actually stretch its and kind of flex its muscles because we have analytics talent, right? But she's like basically investing her own resources to be able to build this out and she needs help. And so I do believe that there's an opportunity to create some level of, there's a lot of money going into nonprofits right now, but it's where does that money get deployed? How does it get deployed? How do you get your talent involved into it? And then everybody talks about these ethnographies. Oh, we did an ethnography in this particular house, right? But when you actually go into a neighborhood and deliver food and you sort of talk with the with the neighbors right there, you get a much better dynamic of how a neighborhood works, not to sell your toothpaste, but to understand that your product's role in that sort of ecosystem or that community and what it means. And I think for me, that was a big eye-opener. And it's something that I can kind of very much get behind to really sort of bridge this last mile problem. Because I do think that there is this massive opportunity where marketers want to do good. The younger talent wants to get involved, but they often, and I've had a ton of conversations with a ton of younger folks about how to get involved. And the question is, what kind of access can you provide to deliver against that? So you are making a huge difference. One day, one study, one research paper at a time. We've covered a lot of ground, Elliot, and I think we're ready to move to speed round. Are you ready for that? Speed round it is. Awesome. What is one thing about you that nobody expects? My go-to answer is always a chess player. Probably my second was an art history major, so I'd have to think about a third one. Because <laughs> you've shared both already. <laughs> I shared both already. So you basically, you basically used up all my bullets. And I, exactly. I shared the fact that I was divorced as well. So I feel like I've been pretty vulnerable here. <laughs> there. So I guess there's nothing else that nobody, nobody else knows about you, right? He's, he's got to keep some secrets. <laughs> yeah, I guess I got to keep some secrets. Yeah. So I would have to get back to you on that. Okay. Recommend a book or a movie that has characters that, that you relate to. And I know you already gave us one from Netflix, but what's another one? What's another go-to? 
I mean, I just read a book by Asian American Helen Zha from her book is called Asian American Dreams. And I really felt that was a really powerful historical narrative on certain vignettes that sort of made the Asian American movement come to life. That's great. What is your favorite mom dish? My mother makes a lot. She makes some really good lo mein, lo mein noodles. Mm-hmm. How'd she make it? I'm trying to remember the sauce. It's definitely a Chinese dish. And it's, it's, like, it's her go-to dish when she does large parties. But we haven't had a large party for a while, so that's why I'm sort of blanking on the name. But it's it's but it's it's a very good dish. So and I've made it for my own kind of housewarming parties as well. What's your least favorite food? I like most foods actually. I don't know actually. I haven't really thought about that because I try most kinds of things. I mean, I probably there's, like, say, there's, there's not one thing like you veto if you show up to a dinner and they serve it. Like no way. Yeah, I guess it'd probably be liver or something like that. Or when I go to yeah. a Chinese restaurant, I won't eat chicken's feet. You know, your fun fact about chicken feet, which I didn't discover until going to far too many dim sums with my wife and her family. Chicken feet is one of the top exports from America to China. Wow. I never knew that. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. It's still gross. <laughs> I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan. And you know what? A fun fact, honestly, probably it's I love to go to Colombia. That's actually where I spend a lot of my time during my year writing the book. So cool. That's really cool. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? I would love to interview like a Gary Vaynerchuk. I've been listening to his podcast a ton and real respect for him. And I think he's got a real, real sense of who he is and meeting people where they are. So I respect him tremendously. Last question, Elliot. You ready? Yep. What does being a model minority even mean? I think for me, it's a it's a term for me that I don't relate to. Yeah, it's not something I understand. Sort of the the acad- like I was talking to an academic who was sort of explaining the history of how that term came to be and yeah. what the implications are in terms of what it does within races, but also what it does between sort of the majority race and the mi- minority race. And I kind of I understand it. It's easy to to put people in boxes, right? And I think that's what we do a lot in sort of the marketing space. You put people in boxes. But I think it's like you got to find your own voice and you got to find your own self. And and for me, that's who I am. I'm very proud to be Asian American. I'm proud to be the son of Gifford Lum and the son of Audrey Lum and, and sort of this being from Hawaii and being from New York and the way that I've grown up. Like I, I'm very proud of that. And I don't think like I want like a term or a category to define me. I'd rather if because if it does, it sort of like limits the scope often of in my mind of who you can talk to or who you have permission to talk with. And I think we have permission to talk with everybody and try to be inclusive to in a, in a way where your life is enriched and hopefully other people's lives are enriched. Well, I like that answer. And I like the way you think about the world, Elliot. And I'm glad there are people like you and Sharon still in the industry moving the ball forward. So thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Roman. Thanks, Sharon. Take care. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode.
And I'm sure your parents feel the same way. There's this push and pull of preservation, right? Of your culture when you come and immigrate here and you want your kids to be good Americans and to assimilate in whatever form that makes sense, right? But you also don't want to lose the pieces that made them who they are. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.